Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. In this episode, I speak to a longtime Product Hunt community member and one of our makers of the year, Peter Levels. You might know him as the founder of Nomadlist, or a very prolific tweeter. <laughs> this episode is all about building a sustainable bootstrapped business, which Peter has done over the last few years. It's also about the rise of digital nomad culture and why the future of work has to be remote. App developers spend way too much time testing and troubleshooting their mobile apps for them to be perfect. Those days are now over. Introducing Headspin for mobile. With Headspin's new all-in-one platform, you can now automate testing, monitor performance, and analyze user experience of your apps on real SIM-enabled devices and actual Wi-Fi and carrier networks anywhere in the world. No SDK required. Learn more about the Headspin Global Device Cloud at headspin.io. Hey, thank you so much for being on Product Hunt Radio today. It's pretty exciting and epic to have you on the show. You're one of the most prolific makers out there on the internet. I feel like most people probably know you as Levels IO and not as Peter, your name. I just checked out your Twitter profile. You've got like, you know, over 78,000 followers now. And of course, you are most famous for Nomad List and Remote OK and just creating a narrative around making and remote working. I remember the Wired article that that kind of got you that high profile acclaim where you were like, I'm going to build 12 startups in 12 months. And people are like, who is this guy? Um, But yes, you've also won Golden Kitty Awards, Maker of the Year, Product of the Year. And yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Abadezi. Super cool. Yay, awesome. So I know it was probably around 2014, 2015 that you launched Nomad List on Product Hunt. And since then, the remote work and, you know, indie maker community has just kind of grown exponentially. What is it like to be in the position you're in where you were kind of like there at the beginning of the journey and like now see how much it's evolved? It, it's super, it's super crazy because um, I was talking with my parents yesterday about it because uh, I'm back at my parents' house. I was trying to explain to them like how like five years ago when we were uh, on the internet, we were making like little startups. Uh, it wasn't at all common to do it by yourself without funding. And everybody was back then talking about like raising funding, going to San Francisco and going to Silicon Valley. Uh, I remember I was talking to these rich people in Amsterdam um, to try and raise funding for, I was trying to do like make like Uber in, in, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And uh, I was trying to raise money. And I was talking to these, like, like these famous rich people in Holland that had like giant companies and they were eating like sushi. And I was like in this giant, beautiful kennel house in Amsterdam on the Amsterdam kennels. And we had to pitch this stuff. And, you know, they didn't turn out they didn't really invest at all. They just, it was kind of like a hobby to them. Like, like only very rarely they invested. So I had to put so much effort into like raising this money. And all I wanted to do was like build a little startup. And then a few years later, like 2014, um, I just started shipping. And but like I said, like back then it wasn't normal at all. It was really uncommon to do it in like a kind of indie maker way, bootstrapping it, uh, growing it small, not having like this giant goal of like a giant company like DHH always uh, talks about, right? Yeah, it, it was It was just, it's hard to imagine, but like it wasn't cool at all what we were doing. It was super not cool. It was like, oh, you guys, your girls want to, you, you want to stay small probably and you're never going to be successful. 
That was pretty much yeah. it. Yeah. It's so it's so ironic because I think you're right. At that time we were still obsessed with this narrative of like unicorn or bust. It's like you have to build a company that gets VC funding and then dominates the market and then makes everyone multimillionaires, billionaires. Woo! And then the ironic thing is that five years later, we're all looking at like the Facebooks and the WeWorks of the world and kind of going, uh oh. And then meanwhile, all the indie makers that were like, I'm just going to knuckle down and focus on building something sustainable are the ones that are just silently growing and, and continuing to grow. I mean, that part, which you just said about like the, the WeWorks and stuff, um, that's so interesting because it showed that, like, I'm not against it, but you have to, to sacrifice a lot. You have to sacrifice, like a lot of these companies are sacrificing ethics, for example, because you want to grow so fast. And if you want to grow so fast and so big, it's, it's really difficult to do that without sacrificing your moral ethics. And you've seen that with all these examples. And there's also good examples. There's loads of companies that raise money that are doing well. So I'm not against it, but I'm just saying like, nobody thought it was cool back then. So yeah, it was super cool to be part of that. Like in so, in any way, like just making things and uh, seeing it grow. It's like super, I, like honest, it's super cool to see things change. I can imagine. And how do you feel in terms of the actual ecosystem? Because I think if we actually think of how access to entrepreneurship has evolved just over the last five or 10 years, it also feels like, you know, five to 10 years ago, there was very much this belief that you had to get outside funding in order to do it, or at least that was the sensible way to do it. Like, you know, this is super risky. Don't just put all of your eggs in one basket, like spread out that risk. And then it seems that like as the narratives evolved and people have been like, hey, there's value in bootstrapping, like don't get money until you need it. Really try to focus on what you're building and whether there's a demand for it and making it you know, amazing. Do you just feel that there's now like more support for people that want to go down the bootstrapping route like you did? Yeah, I, th I think so. Because more people talk about it, right? Like more people talk about it on Twitter. I probably more people talk about it in real life too. Like I, I know all the startup events, like like also in UK and London, for example, there's a lot of start. There's a giant startup event ecosystem. I think Amsterdam too, uh, US too. And the presentations that are happening there, you can kind of follow what's the current like big trend, right? And I, you see more of those presentations about people just doing doing things a little bit smaller, um, more bootstrapped. And uh, but and also like you said, it's way bigger than indie maker. It's like the whole entrepreneurship. Like we think indie maker is big. It's very small. It's a very small niche. Entrepreneurship as a whole is giant. It's like you know small small medium business is giant. And those people probably are having the same effects where uh, there's less funding. There's uh, there's there's more of a how do you say it? It's more of a lean mindset of uh, not spending a lot of money until you're making the money, right? Yes, absolutely. So I'd love to just switch gears a bit and have you tell us about the projects that you're working on now. I know Nomad List has kind of gone from strength to strength. So I'll tell, tell us more about it. And also like, you know, who helps you with this? Like, I know you're kind of working from all corners of the world. Are you building a team? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, so uh, I still work alone <laughs> and... And that's the thing. Everybody's been telling me to hire for like the last five years. Uh, I, I haven't hired, um, at least not for like product stuff. Like I've one, one, uh, my friend Daniel from UK too. He, uh, he helps with the server. So, you know, like stuff like keeping your Nginx web server up on your VPS server is really difficult. Well, it's not difficult, but you don't want to get hacked or that kind of stuff. So he gets an alert when the server goes down and then he goes into the server SSHs and stuff and, does some does some magic but 
like I really like making stuff, like creating and like creative expression and like coding and designing and stuff. So I still like doing that most. And it's again, this is like a thing where I do the opposite of what everybody tells me to do because everybody's like, oh, you should build a giant team, which I'm also not against. But instead, I've been automating everything I do. Like like I've talked a lot about automation, like automating all the things you can think of on Nomadlist and Remote OK and all these websites I have. Think of like uh, getting the weather from an API or getting um, uh, emailing users when they're not using the website or refunding them automatically, that kind of stuff. A lot of support is automated, for example. So anyway, so I've been mostly just on purpose trying to keep working for myself alone to... So I don't want to lose my skills. I don't want to get like irrelevance. I have a fear of irrelevance. And if I uh, stop coding and stop making stuff and I become like some kind of CEO, executive manager, whatever, I feel like I'm going to lose, like I'm going to make it learn a new skill like management, which is a great skill. But I'm, a, I'm not a business guy. I'm a, a more like creative person. So I get happy from making stuff, like making something that's like a challenge to make. And then I make it and it works and people use it. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I don't get that from, I think, management because then other people make it and then I'm, I don't get happy from it. And... And I think also my goal is never be money. So like, uh, I, I probably make more money if I build a team and scale and stuff. But I'm not doing that. So I'm. I I'm really. Doing everything I love opposite. that honesty. I love that honesty because I think there are a lot of makers who probably also experience this. I'm kind of like even thinking of myself. Like you, you start a company or you create a project, and you love solving all the problems and you love building everything and like making all those really fun decisions. And then you get to a super fortunate position where you have a business model that works. You've got traction, things are kind of working. And then you're at this point where you're like, okay, I can either delegate more, but then I'm kind of doing less of the fun stuff. And that must be so tricky. Yeah. The fun stuff is like do, doing stuff. So, I mean, I studied business, so I kind of know about management, right? Like I know what, what you're going to do and how it works, but just doesn't seem for me personally as the most fun part. Then again, if, 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 if there's too much work, you don't want to get burned out, right? You don't want to get stressed doing too much stuff. So I've, like I said, I've really carefully automated everything so much. And because we're in software, it's pretty, uh, logical to automate stuff that you do. And, uh, once the program works, because we're making software, once, this, once the software thing works, it generally kind of keeps working for at least a while, for at least a few weeks or a few months until, and then it does break. Things always break, but in general, uh, and then you fix it a little bit. So mostly what I'm doing is bug fixes, some features, but yeah, I think it's possible. It's, it's possible to build software that just keeps running. And, and then the cool, the fun thing is like, like product development, you can make new stuff, right? You're making new features. And that gives you the time, the automations that you've created are giving you the time to think about the new features you want to build and giving you the time to think about your roadmap. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, okay. So that's another thing, like strategy, right? We call it in business strategy, thinking about what's the next thing and the roadmap. And that's also really fun because that's, again, like idea generation. So my friend Mark, uh, you know him probably from Betalist, also a Dutch, uh, Dutch guy. He's been hiring uh, one person, one developer, where he just, he still works on his websites and his products, but uh, sometimes like small things, small bug fix or whatever, he puts on GitHub as an issue and then this person goes in there and fixes it. And, and that kind of, that kind of setup would probably work because then you can still be creative. You can still build new features yourself and just let other people do like bug fixes, for example, which are kind of boring. Right. Amazing. So I just realized you haven't actually described what Nomad List is. I mean, I'm sure lots of the community members who are listening will know, but for those who aren't familiar, tell us about it and tell us how it's evolved in the years that you've been running it. 
Yeah, so Nomadlist is like a website where you can, uh, there's a lot of cities in the world where you can go and travel and work remotely. That's what I've been doing for the last like five years. And this this website can, it kind of lets you filter all these cities on like the internet speed, on the weather, uh, on the safety, uh, just anything you can think of pretty much. I've collected in as data and I let you filter on it. So for example, a lot of people like, most people like probably mild to warm weather. So you can find places in January that are warm uh, with fast internet that have uh, kind of like a nomad scene. So there's a lot of other remote working nomads there. Uh, so you can socialize with them. So that's kind of the website. So it's all this data collected. You can filter on it. And then a big part of it is the social network where you can meet other travelers, other nomads, and people pay for that to become a member of it. Uh, there's also a Slack group, like, like a giant chat group with uh, about like a few thousand people. So it's pretty much, it's, it, it fixed a lot of problems that remote workers and nomads have, which is like loneliness, for example, like being alone in a faraway country, the isolation of that, but also like the research, like how do you find places to go that, that are good for living, good for working, good for fun too. I think what's so cool about your community is just like how diverse the types of people I've met in it have found value in it. Like I remember one of my friends, Temi day, who's also in the product hunt community based in Berlin, but like came to London and she was just like, yeah, you know, I spent some time in Bali, spent some time here. And yeah, just the community is so great because I was on Nomad's I and I got to meet other makers who are just doing their thing. And I was just like, wow, that's so awesome. So it's so cool that you've been able to make, build and maintain this community that people now rely on as a trusted resource. And I was just wondering, when you first made that very first version, could you have imagined that it would get to the scale that it's at now? No, again, like <laughs> this is all these things, you have no idea, uh, idea what's, what's, what's happening when it's happening. And um. Like, again, back then, there was also not really a big nomad scene. It was also like a little fringe. I think you have the same thing. Every time you enter stuff, like, it's like a fringe. It's like a weird thing. But you're like, ah, oh, this must be, this is kind of cool. Like, this must be, this must become a cool thing in the future, maybe. And then most things you do that, it doesn't happen. And some things it does. And with this thing, again, it happened. Where it became a, I mean, it didn't become a giant thing. I think it became a big thing. Like, I think there's, there's like millions of nomads if you count it, in, if you define nomads as people working from different countries now on their laptop, there's there's millions of them. So that's pretty big. No, I would have never, I've never thought it would have been big. And I never thought that my website would be a big uh, central part of it. Because, you know, it's so hard. Like there's always, uh, like product, product Hunt is pretty much like the, the central website for startup launches and stuff. People wanting to build startups. It's really difficult when you have a scene. Like scenes are organic, right? It's like this, this group of people that are organically converging. They're very diverse. There's like different factions. There's like, there's like uh, people fighting, infighting as well. It's normal. It's a community. To, have a, to make a website, like a company, that grows or promotes or leverages that scene is very risky because it's like a commercial endeavor. But a community is organic with humans. You know what I mean? So it's like, you don't want to commercialize it. You don't want to make it too expensive. Uh, you want it to be kind of open to everybody. And if you do that, then, then it becomes a central part of a community. Um, community, of course, is way bigger than Nomad List. Uh, I think I only capture like maybe 10% of people because most people don't even want to pay, of course. But <laughs> I do get a lot of traffic, which is a lot of free traffic. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of the Nomads, they, they do go to my website. 
I think you make such a good point there. Um, that's one of the challenges of community businesses. They they often start as purely reciprocal, like, oh, I'm coming to get a bit of value. I'm going to share some value. But of course, it's someone's behind the scenes maintaining that. And uh, I feel like you're in, a, you're in a very unique position to talk about you know, converting these projects into a place where they're profitable and into a place where they're sustainable, because that is one of the biggest challenges that makers have, you know, fair enough, if you're building a kind of like standard SaaS tool, where you've got a lot of healthy competitors, you can do a bit of price comparison and position yourself somewhere in the market. How did you approach, you know, trying to build this into something profitable and something sustainable? And do you feel there are any you know, tricks that really worked for you that are overlooked? Or do you feel there are any other things that you, you know, you avoided that lots of makers, unfortunately, still do? Yeah, I think it's the most difficult part. One of the most difficult parts is like getting people to open their wallet, get their credit card out, you know, put in like now with Apple Pay, it's easier to get them to pay because they can just press a button. But no, it's it's so difficult. And, and I think, you know, so many people launch things that are great ideas. They're super useful, but people wouldn't put their credit card out and, and pay money for it, right? You have to make, yeah, it's so difficult to answer. You have to make something that's, that's, that's so useful and that, that makes some, some person's uh, existence pretty much better uh, in the moment for them to actually want to pay money for it. And then the other thing is like that, that, you know, like I asked like $100 or something, $99 uh, for like a year membership. No one does. $100 is a lot of money for me. It's like that you can buy a lot of coffees from that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot of money to ask. It's almost like I, like the first, the first years I felt embarrassed for, for asking money. I remember I, <laughs> I was at a meetup, a Novelist meetup in Taiwan. And I was, we were like partying and stuff and, and uh, drinking cocktails. And I, I, I was a little tipsy, I had two drinks and I was talking to um, a member. Like I was saying, I'm just so sorry that I charge you money for membership. I just feel embarrassed by it. I just feel ashamed. He's like, no, are you, are you joking? Like it's so useful. Like that's why I'm at this meetup and that's why I make all these friends. And I felt, I felt really like imposter syndrome or like embarrassed by it. Like I don't feel I should charge any money. Everything should be free for me, you know, like, uh, but that's not realistic because then I can't make money and I cannot have an income. Right. So, so I wish it would be free. Um, but after a while, I think when, once your, your brand grows, once your website grows and once it's getting older, there's like this, I think they call it Lindy effect. Like the things that are older, they also exist longer, but also people trust them more. Like you've been probably covered by CNN or by press and stuff and people trust it more and they think, okay, this should probably worth $99. And yeah, so it's not really answer your question, but it's just because it's, it's so, it's so difficult to, to charge people money. Just, just psychologically, it's like difficult. No, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think particularly given you have built a community of peers where you're also learning from each other and it's, it's like a nascent industry. It's like growing, it's scaling up. You're sort of like at the beginning of the journey and like riding that wave together. It must feel even more challenging to then exert some sense of authority over that oh my god um, yeah yeah yeah, you yeah. Know? absolutely absolutely no you you 100 understand it like first of all the money you're charging your friends money and second you're some authority figure which you don't want to be you just want to be like a nice person like a nice friend who chills around and so every time i get put into the position of authority where 
even like moderation, like that's why I don't do moderation anymore. But like you, sometimes you have to ban people, for example, or that kind of stuff. Like, I don't want to be that person. I, I don't want to, <laughs> it's just not really, it's not, I like to do fun stuff. I don't, I like to make stuff. I don't like to be so much an authority in that respect. You know, I don't like, I, I, I like, a, I like, a, I like a level, like an equal hierarchical structure. I don't care so much for hierarchy. I, the interesting thing about that is that, I mean, I, I'm totally with you and, and I can empathize with that position so much, but I feel like to some degree, maybe also as makers, it's hard for us to kind of take ourselves out of the scene that we're operating in and the communities that we're active in and take a more macro view of the value we're creating in, in our ecosystem or even, you know, in the economy. And I think what a lot of great founders are doing right now is they are sharing the story of what it's like to be in their position. So they're talking about the journey of like, Hey, guess what? I'm about to release 3.0, 4.0. Here's what I learned between these different versions, or I've made a decision to relocate myself from X to Z to, you know, focus on this. And I feel that that storytelling that comes with making is incredibly valuable because for every person that purchases your product or follows you on social media, there's also like 10 dozen more maybe who are just passively reading what you're creating or passively following your story, but being inspired by it and starting conversations about remote working or about nomad lifestyle in their circles. And I think, you know, how do you get compensated for that value you're creating? It's like, it's it's kind of hard to, right? It's a bit nebulous, hard to measure. But at the same time, the people who are in a position to support that work can do that. And then I feel like it, it's just, it means that your work continues to happen. And the value of that kind of cascades beyond what you can measure or see. Does that make sense? No, 100%. So this, I was explaining to my mom yesterday. Okay. <laughs> she was like, she was like, what? I was explaining um, blog platforms and I was explaining Twitter and stuff. And she's like, why is your Twitter free? And I was like, yeah, it's a good question. You know, like, why is my Twitter free? She's like, because you write all day on this Twitter and you, nobody pays you for it. You need to get paid for it. And I was like, okay, mom. Um, so how it works, usually, you, like, you sell something. You sell like a book or you sell a t-shirt, you know, like merch or whatever. In my case, I sell like a, like a website membership, right? Or or job posts, right? So indirectly, it goes it goes back there. But you're right. So that's... I mean, so you tell stories about, about your life, about remote work, about nomads and stuff, and indie makers do that as well. Part of it is marketing, right? Like you, you get traction from it. And part of it is just you're honestly also telling your story. But yeah, it, it, we do it because it works. It, it, people see it and, and some of them might become a customer, for example. Exactly. But also some of them might might become makers you know someone might be able to make a nomad list that speaks to a ridiculously specific niche you've never even considered and then that adds to everything and I feel like we might sometimes also just undervalue the knowledge capital that we're creating when we are building content like to some degree yes it is content marketing but to some degree it's also you know educating people about a new space um, about a niche but very fast growing space and then, you know, over time, you start to see more like subdivisions within that. And then those can expand and proliferate because of the work that you're doing now. No, I think you're right. I think the previous answer sounded also way too commercial because uh, it was like, oh, I'm, I'm only tweeting to make money. It's bullshit. No, like, again, we have to go back to five years ago when Indie Maker scene didn't exist. I had to tweet about this because there was not a lot of other people 
tweeting about <laughs> talking it. Talking about it. And, yeah, and <laughs> all day I was fighting venture capital uh, investor type people, nothing against them, but I was fighting them because they were the dominant mindset. So I didn't even think about inspiring. It was more about like, this thing obviously works and I need to talk about it because, to, to show other people that it works because it's a cool thing. And so it was like more like a, like a spiritual fight, pretty much, which, and, and, and other people did it, like Petro, Patrick McKenzie from Stripe, Petro11 did that a lot as well. He, like he, he, I think he inspired me to blog and, or more tweet about it, but because he wrote blogs about everything he did. Like every week there was a new blog post about some new experiment he did with his apps and stuff. And no, I think you're right. Inspiring helps. I think inspiring is a little bit like a cliche verb now, right? I think, um, like you need to have some kind of, like I had five years ago, I had some kind of fight against like a, like a intellectual, spiritual fight against uh, some, against the mainstream, you know, like rebelling against it. And I think that's a nice way to see it uh, for me personally. And if that inspires people, that's nice, right? Yeah, I think you're right because you, from the very beginning and in many ways, like at quite a kind of risky stage of your career, because you're still quite young. You're like, hey, I'm in my 20s. And it's like, F you to the yeah, traditional exactly. corporate path. <laughs> in I'm your, not going to get a normal job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to get a normal job. I'm just going to like start my own companies. And, like, and I'm see also not getting, getting money raised from investors anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> but then in a way, perhaps it was pretty cool that the experiment of doing something different and taking that riskier path paid off because in a way you've normalized something that a lot of people yeah just like would not have recommended as a career path you know like I feel like when I was at university I graduated 10 years ago no one was like yeah consider being a freelancer or considering working on like multiple projects at the same time so you have more flexibility like that was just not a mindset that existed for professors or careers advisors you know they're coming from a different generation they didn't have everything on the cloud all this incredible like mobile technology so i get it i guess it's kind of an interesting part of the interview to then think about what the next 5 to 10 years of the nomad lifestyle could look like because um, you know, when we think of when you started to now, you're talking about, you know, choosing a career path that wasn't well carved and people weren't like, here's the rule book on how to do a nomad life or how to be a remote maker that didn't exist Two, the community wasn't so well connected online and hadn't necessarily like named itself or labeled itself yet. So, you know, over time, we've seen people talk about this more. We've seen people like um, connect with each other more. We've seen more and more resources about it. I feel like we're also seeing traditional employers be more open to working with contractors and freelancers than always hiring someone that has to be in the office. And that's really interesting. But now I'm kind of looking to the next few years and I see our attitudes to certain things connected to nomad life changing, right? Like people are already having different attitudes around air travel. Some of my friends the other day in the pub were like, oh, I'm going to try to only take you know, three flights this year instead of the six I took last year. And, you know, that's one particular thing. But do you see any other either like trends or or maybe even risks to the nomad lifestyle that could happen in the coming years? Yeah, I think the, the, the flight shaming thing is, is really big. And um, but I mean, I have to debunk this like the, the average, like people always think of nomads as like they're moving around every two weeks or something. And I've tweeted about this like a million times to try and but and but every time I have to tell everybody, they're mostly like settled settled down in, but they're just settled down in, in two places or three places. So they move 
so you start off as a nomad. You're like, oh my god, I'm going to travel the world forever, which is bullshit because hardly anybody does that. You go, you go mentally insane. Like I went mentally insane from traveling too fast. It's really dangerous. Yes, I'm pretty sure it messes up your circadian rhythm and like not just that. Like, like think of like everything that grounds you to one place. Like uh, your identity is 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 you know when you go travel and you go to a new place and you're like, wow, I feel so different here. Okay, imagine if you feel that like every week and. Every your identity in every place is shaped by the environment, literally like by the weather, by the people around you, by the interior, by the architecture. Everything influences you. If you change that every week, your brain is like, "What the hell is going on? Like, I can't, I can't follow this. I can't track this." And you, you literally go crazy. So most nomads are not. They don't do that. They, they're not able to do that. They burn out. They would burn out. Most of them travel like four to six months in one place. The average, and that comes from my database. It's like four to six months. Uh, they they are fixed in one place. Uh, averages are always kind of like weird statistical, right? Like some some people would do it faster, some people less. But in general, uh, and it fits with how I travel. Like I'm for long periods of time in in one place. Uh, the limitation of it is visas, pretty much. Like if if there was no visa limitation, which for me as a European is super easy, by the way, because I usually I can stay 30, 60, 90 days. A lot of other people have to apply for visas, which is way worse. So I have it very easy, I must say. But still, the, the visa limitations, they limit you how long you can stay in a place. And I think if that would become easier for everybody, uh, people would stay longer. But the point is, um, so nomads are pretty much, the, the word is wrong, digital nomads, because they don't really nomad so much. They just work from different countries, a few hops. Like you said, like your friend was in Bali and then Berlin. That kind of makes sense. Uh, you, maybe you're you're in Bali in the winter of Europe and you're in Berlin in the summer in Europe because it's great, right? So, an example: last year I only flew three or four times, like your friend said. So that's that's way less. That's probably less than people with a full time job that have to <laughs> travel no, exactly. a lot. This, yeah, it's less than my than my than my Dutch friends fl- uh, flew. So, um, so that's a good example that the the nomadless guy flies less than normal people do, and. But it also because travel is really fun, but more fun is like, I guess it's about like, like finding the, finding a place where you feel better than where you're born or than where you've, you've grown up or went to university and stuff. And like, I was born in a small town in Holland and I moved to different cities for university. I ended up in in Amsterdam in the end and uh, Amsterdam was nice because it was very international, but my point is like, there's all these little, these different hubs, these nomad hubs or just also like tech hubs that are nice to live in. Or, or maybe if you're a nature person, you can go live in a cabin. But I think that there should be more attention to what's the best place for you to live. Of course, because that's what my, that's what my website is about. But um, because it affects you, like I said, environments affect you. And they might make you more creative. They might make you more happy. People with arthritis, they go to warm places because they have less uh, medical problems, right? So there's a lot of reasons to move to different places. Not necessarily move move fast or regularly, but find places that work for you. And with remote work, that becomes ha- possible. Yeah, totally. And so if I'm understanding your point correctly, you have observed that individuals want to be in the places where they're the most productive and, you know, the most content, the healthiest they can be if if they're able to, like if they're able to work from anywhere or or they will seek work where they can work from those places. And as we are almost personalizing our work life more, you see the nomad approach to working continuing to grow. 
I think so. I, I think we won't be calling it nomads very soon anymore. We'll be just mm, be called it, normal. It, it, will, <laughs> it will just yeah. You remember like in 1995? Uh, I don't know if I remember even, but uh, they would call internet people like netizens, netizens, which is like it's like super nerd word, but like like citizens, but then on the net and people that used the internet were netizens, and we don't even use that word anymore. Like everybody has a phone uh, and they they they're on the internet 24 seven. So. I think the same thing happens with Nomad. Like we won't even talk about it anymore, and uh, like very soon, like within a few years. And Nomad Nomadism is a, is a percentage of remote work, right? Like let's say it's one to ten percent of remote work. So the, the the more remote work grows and becomes mainstream, the more living in different countries, working remotely, becomes more mainstream. So so once once that becomes mainstream, um, yeah, we don't need to call it Nomadism anymore. And I feel as though your assumptions around you know this trend are or who they are. Yeah, I think so. I think um, not just work. I think because we always talk about remote work, but what about like life, right? Like how you feel as a person uh, in your life. And and like I said, I think you should be in the place where you feel best. And But also like how many of your friends are like international? That's like, true. Or like, are like foreigners. Like, like, like the majority of my time now, I speak English to my friends. Like I even speak English to my Dutch friends. So which is becoming really strange. Um, so, so once all our friends are from, from all over the place, which we already are now, um, like, like these people will probably converge. Like there, we already are planning like places to live together. Like that's what I do, uh, for, for a certain, certain periods of time. So. Yes, I think you're right. The way we live will also change. It's not just about, oh, I'm buying a house and I'm going to live here for 35 years. Um, we have more options and we have more choices and. Yeah, and people people can't afford to buy a house now as well. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Generation. So, but but that's a big part of it. Like the finan- financial part of it is like a lot of things you can't afford anymore. So you have to move. It's just it's it's almost forced by economics. And I definitely have noticed in in tech in particular. So I'm based in London most of the time, and I see a lot of CTOs. I see a lot of CTOs who have made the decision to build their engineering teams in other hubs in the world. Yeah, where like in Europe can, a lot, right? Yeah, exactly. It might be Lisbon, it might be Sofia, like, you know, the product hunt team. But um, I think that's going to happen with more and more different skill sets over time as well. Because, you know, right now it's kind of focused mostly on software engineering because of the over demand and lack of supply. But, you know, over time, that's surely just going to like expand. People are talking about artificial intelligence needing more ethicists and stuff like that. So I just feel that um, we're going to see more of that um, like geo optimization for specific roles because that's where you get the best return on your investment if you hire there or if you, you know, hire openly and flexibly across the world. Yeah, but I mean, think about stuff like, like medical diagnosis. Like there's like a, a app on the iOS app store for you can make a photo of your skin and it checks like what skin thing you have. Like if it's a pimple or if it's like cancer or whatever. And that stuff like the doctors, they can just they can sit at home or they can be anywhere pretty much. And so you're right. It's going to it's going to infiltrate into every almost every industry that you can think of. I know I don't have to have you for a lot longer, sadly. I could sit here and ask you questions for ages. Um, But one thing I wanted to ask, this is my favorite part of the podcast. You know, we're obsessed with products in our community. We want to know what websites and apps and toys and gadgets people are obsessed with or playing with a lot these days. So I thought it could be fun to ask you since you're exposed to a lot of new products all the time, you know, through your community and probably know some which are like optimal for 
you know, remote working and nomad life. But yeah, what are the products that um, you're a bit obsessed with right now or which you rely on every day? Just, I just got AirPods Pro in the, in the mail, so that's good. I, what's, I think most important, I use a Roost stand. It's called the Roost stand, R-O-O-S-T. It's a laptop stand. It's very minimal. Uh, it's very lightweight. And the biggest problem I see with people working anywhere, not just nomads, but anywhere, are that, they're, that their uh, back is like curved and they're looking downward to their computer. I was doing it again too, because it's, it's so fun to not sit ergonomically, to curve your back and, lo- and put your face in your screen. Uh, but I started getting headaches. I started getting headaches on my right side of my head and I Googled it. I was like, oh my God, am I going to die? No, it's just, it's pressure from not sitting properly. So the roost stand, I used to raise my laptop to eye height and then I have a wireless keyboard, Apple wireless keyboard and a tra- normal Apple uh, trackpad. But the most important is the laptop stand because you want to sit ergonomically because all these health problems start from sitting improperly. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's so funny. Anytime someone mentions posture, I immediately check mine. Like, hang on, <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah, no, right now? our posture is wrong. <laughs> like, we're all bad at it. But uh, you don't need to be perfect. But especially if you're young, it's so easy. It doesn't really matter. But once you're getting older, your back starts to yeah. Just you don't even want to talk about it. It's just bad stuff. But you want to, You want to be sitting straight. You want to be standing straight and stuff. And uh, and it makes you taller. You know, everybody wants to be taller. So if you stand that up straight. That is true. Although, like, Dutch people have nothing to complain about on that front, surely. Uh, you like, me, one of the tallest nations. <laughs> I, I, I'm the shortest from, from my brothers, from my family, so it doesn't really help. Um, 178, so, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, that's pretty cool. Like, great to hear your stack. And for folks who are listening and are now curious to find out more about the sites you've made and the communities that you've built, where should they go? Uh, well, if you're on Twitter, uh, my Twitter is levels.io, which is L-E-V-E-L-S-I-O. Uh, and the website, my main website is nomadlist, nomadlist.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Peter. Thank you so much for having me, Abadez. It was super fun. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.